want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 13 through 23 this morning. According to the History Channel's website, Patrick Daniel Tillman was born the oldest of three brothers on November 6, 1976 in San Jose, California. He played linebacker for Arizona State University. In 1998, Tillman was drafted into the NFL by the Arizona Cardinals. He became the team's starting safety as well as one of its most popular players. In 2000, he broke the team record for tackles with 224. In May 2002, Tillman turned down a three-year, multi-million dollar deal with the Cardinals, and instead, prompted by the events of September 11, joined the Army, along with his brother, Kevin, who was a minor league baseball player. The Tillman brothers were assigned to the 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Lewis, Washington. They did tours in Iraq in 2003, followed by Afghanistan the next year. On April 22, 2004, Pat Tillman was killed by gunfire while on patrol in a rugged area of eastern Afghanistan. The army initially maintained that Tillman and his unit were ambushed by enemy forces, and Tillman was praised as a national hero. He was awarded the Silver Star and Purple Heart medals and posthumously promoted to corporal. Weeks later, Tillman's family learned his death had actually been an accident. Pat Tillman was not killed by enemy forces. He was killed by friendly fire. There are all kinds of horrors and tragedies in war, but there is something about friendly fire that is especially difficult to accept. The family was rocked by that news. Suddenly, his public reputation as a hero who died bravely fighting the enemy just turns into, it was all an accident? He was killed by his own comrades. The very real, very deadly possibility of friendly fire in the church is what Paul addresses and seeks to guard us against by God's grace in Romans 14, 13 through 23. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able, out of our regard for God and his word, to stand with me as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, we know that you love us because you gave your son for us. We know that you love us because you speak to us in your word and you communicate yourself to us and your wisdom and your truth and you give us grace to guard us from causing one another to stumble, from destroying the work of God. Would you cause this word to take root in our hearts and bear fruit for the, the good of this church and the glory of Jesus' name for the sake of the faith of each member of this body. Bless now the preaching of your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. As we saw last week in Romans 14, Paul is dealing with differences of views and practices between Christians, things that in and of themselves are not wrong. So he's not talking here about doctrinal errors, heresy. He's not here talking about moral issues. He's talking about differences of opinions over things that are not in and of themselves wrong. And the particular issue at the heart of the controversy in Rome had to do with food. Some believers, most likely Jewish Christians, who genuinely desired to honor the Lord by following Old Testament dietary restrictions, they still believed it was wrong for them to eat meat. And there were others, Paul refers to them as the strong They believed rightly that they were free to eat any food. So they did. And they gave thanks to God for it. So far, so good. The problem, as we saw last week, was that the weak were sinning against the strong by unjustly condemning their behavior. And the strong were sinning against the weak by looking down on them and despising them. So the main point in verses 1 through 12, last week's text, was stop judging one another. Paul gives reasons to support that. That rebuke was primarily directed at the weak, who were judging sinfully the strong. Here in verse 13, Paul sums up that point as he transitions and shifts his focus now to the strong. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. There he's summing up verses 1 through 12. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So a stumbling block was literally something that caused somebody to trip. A hindrance was a trap used for catching someone or some animal. Both of those words, tripping and trapping, they they took on this figurative sense of causing someone to fall morally, spiritually, causing spiritual downfall in another. Six times in this passage, Paul warns Christians not to cause another believer to stumble not to destroy one another, not to grieve one another. So the stakes are really, really high. We're not just talking about meat and vegetables. We are, but that's not all we're talking about. We're talking about the potential spiritual downfall of people in the church caused by people's views of food. So, That does two things at the same time. It elevates our thinking about food because it reminds us everyday stuff can be a really big deal. This is the arena in which we live out our faith. And people's souls are at stake. 
in the way that we relate to one another. How you deal with seemingly trivial differences is not trivial at all. The way Christians relate to one another in everyday life has serious consequences. You will either build others up in their faith and strengthen the church, or you can contribute to the spiritual downfall of others and weaken the church. The stakes are high. Are are you paying attention? This is sobering. As if the opposition, the hostility, the persecution that comes from outside the church isn't enough, Christians can actually do great damage to one another inside the church through friendly fire. Over things as everyday as food. Just think about your own life. My guess is, odds are that some of your deepest hurts have come not from atheists and skeptics out there, but from someone inside the church. It's probably true for many here. Right in the middle of this passage, verse 19, is the positive, the the emphatic conclusion, Paul's point, so then, let us pursue. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Gospel community, the church of Jesus Christ, is marked by saints who joyfully cultivate unity rather than arrogantly insisting on uniformity. I think that's the claim of this text. Gospel community is marked by saints who joyfully cultivate unity, even with those they disagree on issues about, rather than arrogantly insisting on uniformity. We desperately need this text today, don't we? I mean, how many times have you said or heard somebody else say in the last few years even, we live in a polarized society. We live in a crazy time. I mean, every single issue is a hill to die on these days, Right? And you, you've got to take a position, you've got to have an opinion, you've got to change your profile picture to declare it, and, and the intensity is cranked to 11 on everything. Every week, it's something new, and if you're not up in arms about it, you just don't care. You're not paying attention. But these are crazy times. We, we need the wisdom of God revealed here to inform our conduct, how we relate to one another in community. We need God's grace here to empower our love and our unity. So let me remind you where all of this is going because Paul's building up to this conclusion in Romans 15, 5 through 6, this this prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together. With one voice, in harmony, living together. That's where this is going. So what does it mean to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother? Verse 13. That's the sin to avoid in this passage. What does it mean to cause your brother to stumble? I think this text has been widely misunderstood, misapplied. It's common, I think, in my experience anyway, to hear this passage cited oftentimes in regards to Christians' views of alcohol. So say some Christians feel comfortable enjoying a glass of wine, a beer together, but a brother who doesn't drink is coming to the barbecue. Somebody might say, oh, you know, so-and-so doesn't drink. We don't want to cause him to stumble. Maybe we shouldn't have any, any beer available. So in that sense, the, the principle in Romans 14 is taken to mean something like, don't do things 
that some Christians disagree with, at least not in front of them because it might offend them and that would be unloving. I don't think that's what Romans 14 is teaching. For one thing, avoiding everything that anyone else disagrees with, (laughs) good luck. For example, some Christians are convinced they should boycott Target. So does Romans 14 mean it's unloving, sinful for you to shop at Target? Or maybe you should survey the parking lot to make sure that that friend in the Lord is not out there watching. As long as they don't know you shop at Target. But what if it slips that that flower pot is from Target? Joanna Gaines. Is it okay as long as you're sneaky about it and you keep it hidden? Or consider the COVID situation. Was wearing a mask the loving thing to do because some Christians were mad if you didn't? Or was not wearing a mask the loving thing to do because some Christians were mad if you did? Which direction does it go? Whose feelings are we talking about? Who sets the standard? If the principle taught here is you're duty-bound not to hurt the feelings of others, somebody's always going to take offense over Something. I'm convinced the main point of Romans 14 is not that love obligates Christians to tiptoe around the feelings of those who are easily offended. Paul just rebuked the weak in verses 1 through 12 for passing judgment on the strong. It would not make sense for him to turn around and say, and by the way, their judgment is the standard now that you're held to. That doesn't make sense. Rather, what it teaches is that Christians are obligated to respect one another's convictions without pressuring others to violate their own consciences. You are required by God's word to respect the convictions of another, even if they differ from yours, without pressuring them to violate their own conscience. That's the meaning, I think, that's pointed to what it means to cause somebody to stumble. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. He's talking there about the weak brother who doesn't want to eat the meat. If you pressure him to eat it, he is actually eating something that is unclean to him. So the problem is not just that the strong ate steak or even that they ate steak and the weak knew about it. The sin was that the strong were in some way pressuring, maybe even requiring as a barrier to community that the, the weak violated their own consciences. Perhaps the strong majority made meat the only menu option at their shared meals together. We don't know the details, but causing a brother to stumble, putting a hindrance in his way, is, it's far more serious than just doing something that someone else clicks their tongue at disapprovingly. In, in the conclusion, verse 23, Paul says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating, his eating, is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, Eating may not have been a big deal to the strong, but it was really sin for the weak to do that. That's why Paul speaks of this in terms of stumbling, spiritual downfall, spiritual destruction. The souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ are at stake. So what does God reveal here to keep us from taking each other out? through friendly fire? What what can we learn about how to pursue peace and live in love together even though sometimes we're going to disagree? The the strong were right. All food was clean. They were right about that, but their lives were all wrong because they didn't understand 
some more foundational things. Paul's saying, good for you. You're right on the food. Let me inform you of some other things that should be shaping your conduct. What, what are those things? Let me give you three principles for pursuing peace together. The, the priority of conscience, the work of Christ, and the culture of the kingdom. These are the things that Paul wants them to be informed about because this changes everything. First, the priority of conscience. Right off the bat, Paul affirms that the strong are technically right. Verse 14, he agrees with them. I know, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. That's what Paul thinks. That's his position too because that's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that all foods were now clean. Mark 7, Acts 10. This is an important point before we move on too quickly, especially for the weak. History is just clear. People are always trying to be more holy than God, more restrictive, more careful, All right? So the trap of legalism is we, we want to set up rules and requirements further out from where God has drawn the line just so we are careful to never get anywhere close to where God himself drew the line. So God forbids drunkenness, and so some conclude, therefore, it would be a sin to even touch alcohol. Well, it's further out than God has put the line. Nothing is unclean in itself, and a great temptation that we face as human beings is to mislocate our sin problems in the stuff, right? So, so it's just easier to blame the technology. What's wrong with the world? Smartphones are just ruining everybody. No, it's human hearts using, misusing technology, right? It's the food. It's the alcohol. It's, what, it's the money. No, it's, it's none of those things. It's the human heart and our misuse of those things. Everything God made is good, and it's to be received with thanksgiving. However, there's always more to consider than the stuff, the stuff itself. Paul goes on, the rest of verse 14, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. In addition to the stuff we have to think about, we have to factor into the equation the person using the stuff. Paul informs the strong, it, it really is wrong for your brother to violate his or her conscience. When your conscience is free, your position is right, you've got reason on your side, it's easy to look down on somebody else with a restricted conscience and think, it's just food, get over it, right? That's the temptation. But when it comes to issues that are not wrong in and of themselves, we're never permitted to say, it's just food, it's just a mask, it's just a vaccine, it's just whatever. No, we're talking about people, and people have consciences, and they have souls, and souls that can be stumbled and destroyed. We're talking about the people, not the stuff. According to Romans 14, the conscience of each individual really, really matters. It matters. This does not mean that your conscience is infallible, that it's 100% reliable. It doesn't mean everyone's conscience is well-informed. It doesn't mean that your conscience is synonymous with the voice of the Holy Spirit, but your conscience matters, and so does your brother's conscience and your sister's too. It really is wrong to do something you think is wrong, even if you're wrong. How can that be? Well, Paul explains in verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Not because he's breaking a law from God about the food, but because he's not living by faith in the area of food. Whether or not you're sinning is determined by whether or not you are acting from faith. Are you trusting the Lord? So what does it mean to eat from faith? What does it mean to do anything from 
faith. It, it means your convictions on the issue are informed by your faith in Jesus, and your desire is not just to do your own thing, but to honor the Lord, to trust Him. You're acting the way you're acting because you're trusting God. You're submitting to Him. See, the food itself is neutral, but the people aren't. People are either honoring Christ as Lord, trusting in Him, or rejecting Him and dishonoring Him. We saw that last week in verse 6. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Nothing is neutral, not even food, because people aren't neutral. And in verse 22, Paul says this. So the faith that you have is really what this is all about. Faith, your faith, your brother's faith, your neighbor's faith. Helping one another trust the Lord more and act from that faith. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That, that doesn't mean the strong have to eat in secret. It means just because you're convinced that it's okay, that's right for you to do that, doesn't mean the very next item on your to-do list for the day is convince everybody else to do what you're doing. And we, we are especially prone, I think, to harming one, another's, one another when, when our views are first kind of formed, right? Initial enthusiasm when you learn some new thing, maybe some new freedom, your mind is now informed by God's word in a new way, you see some truth, you can lose all sense of proportion. Like this thing is now the most important thing in the world to you, so it must be the most important thing everybody else you know needs to learn. They all need to get on board with you and start doing things that way. You know what I'm talking about? It's like Abraham Kaplan said, give a small boy a hammer and he will find that everything he encounters needs pounding. Give somebody, you know, some believer some new truth, boom, everybody's got to do this. Back in verse 5, Paul said, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. As soon as you're convinced, it's easy to think, I need to convince others. Not so fast, Paul says. Conscience matters. Faith matters. It's more important to respect your brother's conscience than to recruit him to your side of the issue. Second reality the work of Christ. The strong were right, all food is clean. They were uninformed about the importance of conscience. They were also misguided about the work of Christ. And Paul corrects that in verses 15 and 20. By what you eat, that is for the sake of food, over this issue, do not destroy the one, listen to these words, the one for whom Christ died. He says essentially the same thing in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Both sides of the debate focused on the topic of the debate, the food. And Paul reframes everything in terms of the person on the other side of the food, the other side of the table. And it would be impossible. Just, just think about this. How could Paul possibly place any higher value on your fellow Christian than he does here in these few words? The one for whom Christ died. That's who you're arguing with. That's who you're pressuring. The one for whom Christ died. The work of God. Those two things go together. Christ died for your brother to build up your brother. When Paul thinks of people, he thinks of them as the work of God. This is true throughout his letters, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He tells the Corinthians, we are God's building. God is working on us. What is God up to in the world? What is he doing? He's working on people, people for whom Christ died. That's what God is doing. Is that the lens through which you view others? Is that the reality that informs how you relate to those that you disagree with? Just look around the room and look at these people that you are in community with. They are the work of God. They are what God is building in the world. A work that required the death of the infinitely glorious Son of God. There's no more important work going on in the world than this work that God is doing in your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the truth that shapes your conduct as you live in community with one another. So then, as you live life with each other, the question is never, how can I get these people to please me more? Be less bothersome to me, less offensive to me, less different than me. The question is always, what is God's agenda for this person? And I encourage you, you pray for others in community. Just spend any amount of time in community. You will eventually start to see rough edges, some faults and flaws, areas that need to grow. Pray that way. God, what's your agenda for that person? Not, how do I wish that person would change? What's God's agenda? No one has the right to walk onto somebody else's job site and just start you know, digging a new hole. I thought the foundation should go over here. I knocked down this framing you put up, but I just thought we don't need that wall there. You don't get to do that to somebody else's work. This is God's work. What is he up to in one another's lives? Paul soberly warns Christians in Rome, don't think your agenda for each other is more important than God's. Now look how many times he just turns up the contrast between food and your brother. Food and your brother. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat. 15 again, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Verse 20 again, it is wrong for anyone to make another, that is your brother, stumble by what he eats. Your brother matters more than you being right on this point. Those who are willing to destroy the very work of God for the sake of food, they probably thought they were doing the work of God. Yeah, but Paul, they're wrong, right? I mean, aren't you glad I am informing them, helping them out a little bit, helping them mature? I'm discipling them. The problem is Christians who dunk on each other should be lamenting, not celebrating. If if you're dunking on your own team, you are not scoring points. You're scoring against your own team. To avoid causing that kind of spiritual damage to others, you have to know what God values, what God is up to. And we know the answer. You start with this. For whom did God give his son to die? This is God's work. You are God's work. Number three, the culture of the kingdom. You look at the heart of the passage right in the middle, kind of fans out, going into this, coming out of it, but right in the center. This is Paul's main point, verses 16 through 19. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. When Paul says, don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, he doesn't mean you shouldn't hold any views, any convictions that somebody else might disagree with. Again, that would be impossible. Besides, we know from Paul's own life, he had plenty of opponents, lots of people who opposed him and the gospel that he preached, spoke evil of him. What he means is, you should not be such a jerk about your convictions that you give your position a bad name. Right? Your position might be right, but if your conduct is all wrong about it, what kind of reputation are you going to give to that position that you hold. Let me use an example. I know this was true from my own life before I came into Reformed theology, but I, I think some people have a perception that Calvinists are cranky and argumentative. That was certainly my view of Calvinists for a long time. And why? Because I had met some really cranky, argumentative Calvinists. That was the thing that stood out to me more than... I didn't even know they called their theology the doctrines of grace... I didn't really encounter anything gracious about that guy. Right? His, his conduct undermined the doctrines he supposedly put forth. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be like that. And why not? Verse 17, because. Here's the reason. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know how different cultures have different characteristics, different cuisines, different manner of dress, things that characterize those cultures, right? The Scottish have their kilts and got tacos and tamales in Mexico and Dutch wooden shoes. And they're these iconic things that represent a culture. What is the culture of the kingdom known for? So that we all follow the same diet, we all look the same. No, we travel around the world on a Lord's Day like this as Jesus is worshipped from the rising of the sun in Asia all the way across the world through the Pacific Ocean Christians are going to look very different, different cultures, and yet there should be kingdom distinctives. We're not primarily defined by uniformity of cuisine or appearance. Citizens of the kingdom are to be known for their righteousness and their joy and their peace, their mutual encouragement. Verse 15, Paul's concern is that the strong are to be walking in love. Verse 19, the concluding exhortation is, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 23, the point is everything has to come from faith. So whether the debate is over diet, what diet to follow, or what holidays to observe, Paul reminds Christians, your priority, your focus should be on faith and love. Your focus should be on joy and peace. And essentially, I think he's applying the wisdom of Proverbs 15, 17, which says, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. It really would be better to sit down at a table to eat a dinner of only vegetables with a bunch of people who are in fellowship with each other than to sit down to a feast of brisket and ribs with people who are sinfully out of fellowship with each other. Get your priorities right, Paul's saying. The kingdom is marked by these things. And then he says in verse 18, whoever thus, that is in this manner, marked by peace and joy and love, whoever serves Christ in that manner is acceptable to God and approved by men. So rather than taking it on yourself to correct your brother, to get him more pleasing to God, you just focus on pleasing God yourself by living a life that's marked by joy and peace. That would please God more, even if your brother just keeps eating vegetables. He's missing out. That's okay. 
you can glorify God this way. Give your time and your energy to becoming a more joyful, more content, more loving, more patient, more humble person. That's God's agenda for you. And not only does that please God, but Paul says, that's approved by men. They might still disagree with your diet, but who can disagree with your gracious, generous demeanor? Who can argue with that? Where does all of that come from? It's produced by the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, joy, peace, verse 17, Paul says, in the Holy Spirit. These are supernatural traits. I said this this last week. does not require the Spirit of God to like people who are like you. It does require the Spirit of God to grow in righteousness and peace and joy in community with people who are different than you. And to the degree that we walk in the Spirit together, then that distinct culture of the kingdom is discernibly manifested among us. And so, as Paul says to us, let us pursue these things, brothers and sisters. Friendly fire from Christians is a real and sobering possibility. It should cause us all to tremble. Watch ourselves carefully. But loved ones, we, we have reason to live in community with one another without fear. Confident that God is at work in us, that Christ died for us to make us into a vibrant culture marked by joyful peace and unity together, not partisan animosity, not petty rivalry. Christ died for these things. It's not out of reach. His Spirit is producing it in us. By God's grace, it's possible for you to avoid tearing others down and instead spend your life building one another up, cultivating a distinct kingdom culture that displays God's grace to the world. May that be so for your good and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we want what you want, what you value, what you love. And we know what you value because of who you gave your son for. To have a people for your own possession who are zealous for good works, a people purified by the blood of Jesus, sanctified, counted righteous not on account of what we've done, but on the merits of our great high priest, you have done wondrous things and you are doing glorious things today in your church. So we pray that you would build your church. And when we pray that, we mean build up these individual people. May they be built up in their faith. May each one gathered here grow deeper reliance on Jesus, greater trust and dependence on Jesus, more love for Jesus. And may that be manifested outwardly, discernibly, that those who come in among us would, would notice and experience, be the recipients of generous love and discernible joy and happiness and contentment in the middle of a world where Everybody's just so amped up about everything. Trying to die on every hill. God, would you make us people who are earnestly pursuing more of the work of your spirit in us and in one another. For Jesus' sake, amen.